um, fifth grade and, and down, they can go and hear a message that is uh, based on the gospel, walks them through scripture from beginning to end, not every Sunday, but that's the scope and sequence of it. And um, we are appreciative for our volunteers working with them. Uh, let's pray for them. Let's pray for our own hearts. Fathers, we approach your word this morning. We pray uh, that all of us um, will see what you have to say in your word. We pray that you would give us grace because apart from your grace, uh, we can approach Scripture uh, with our intellects, uh, but come away unchanged. So we pray for transformation today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, <laughs> the passage today talks about what time it is, okay? And not what time it is on a clock or even necessarily on a calendar, but what age we're in. Uh, we live in a time that is winding down. And Paul, like Jesus, wanted the disciples, want his, their readers to understand that we need to live in light of that. Now, think about times in your life where you had a deadline approaching, and the closer you got to that deadline, the less things you could do that didn't have to do with that thing at the deadline. For example, your wedding. Three months before the wedding, you might not know you know, who's going to take pictures, what you're going to do for music, what song you're going to walk into. But three days before the wedding, if you don't know that stuff, that that's, might be a problem. Why? The only difference is proximity to that deadline, right? And so if you wake up three hours before you have to leave for work, you can brew coffee. You can brew who knows how many cups of coffee before you have to leave. You can walk the dog. You can take your time shaving whatever you need to do. You can take your time. But if you wake up three minutes before you have to leave, you can only do what is absolutely necessary. And as the deadline approaches, it sort of trims the fat, doesn't it? As deadlines approach, it forces you, it prompts you, to not do the things that get in the way of being ready for that approaching deadline. And this is exactly what Paul gets to in Romans 13. Would you turn there with me as he's writing the, the Christians in Rome? For 11 chapters, he lays down the basics of the gospel. You're like, if the gospel is so basic, why does he need 11 chapters? Well, it's profound. But for 11 chapters, he explains that we cannot approach God, as we talked about in our time of communion. We cannot come to God and say, um, I don't need mercy. Just let me in. Other people need mercy. Uh, whether you have been exposed to Scripture or you've never heard the Bible before, before the Lord, we are all guilty and in need of grace. By God's love, he supplied that grace and demonstrated his love by sending his son Jesus Christ to be the sacrifice we need. And because Jesus Christ came to be the sacrifice we need, we give him glory at the end of chapter 11. We glorify God for this wonderful gospel that's simple enough to grasp, but too deep to fully understand. And then at the top of chapter 12, what's the result of it? Well, we're supposed to be living sacrifices. We don't say, well, Jesus was a sacrifice, so I can coast. Jesus was a sacrifice, so I have to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's our spiritual worship. We're not supposed to be conformed to the world. We're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. This is 12.2. And then he continues, what does that perfect, good, acceptable will of God look like? It looks like serving one another in the church in 3 through 8. It looks like loving one another with fervor and zeal. 
showing hospitality to one another in the next paragraph. It looks like blessing those who persecute you. At the top of chapter 13, it looks like living under a worldly government as good citizens, model citizens of the worldly government. It looks like not owing anybody anything except to love them. It looks like living out the Ten Commandments in 13.9. It looks like doing no wrong to your neighbor. It looks like fulfilling the law. It looks like something. Now, we can know that intellectually. We can be taught that. And we can kind of do it. We can sluggishly do it. We can half-heartedly do it. And so at this juncture, Paul says, let me give you something that puts a little pep in your step. Let me, let me provide you with something that all of what we're seeing in chapter 12 and the top of chapter 13, we don't just do it, eh, we do it with energy. We don't do it lackadaisically like the person who's, eh, the deadline is three months away. We do it like the person who sees the deadline as three minutes away. That's how we live, with that kind of urgency. And people in your life are going to tell you, hey, hey, where's the fire? And you're going to tell them that there's an impending fire. And there is a time of reckoning. And each day inches us closer to that day. Take a look. Chapter 13 of the letter to the Romans. We're in verse 11. Let's read 11 to just the beginning of verse 12. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Your translation might say, and this. Uh, Reading the ESV here, besides this. What's this? Everything I just reviewed. From 12.1 to 13.10. All all the things he's telling us, do this, live like this, be like that. Okay? And this, all of this, we do it. Knowing the time. Knowing the time. Because we know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. And he describes what's the time. The time is that salvation is coming. It's nearing. And it's nearer now than when we first believed. The night is behind and the day is in front of us. The night is gone. It's far gone. And the day is looming. The day is at hand. It's near. We don't really use that language much anymore, but if your kids are really, really hungry and you ordered Uber Eats or something and they're like, come on, when's he going to get here? And you check your app and you're like, oh, it's at hand. You know, you'd sound like you're practicing for a Shakespearean play, but what you mean is it's near. It's close. I see it. It's coming. And that's what he means by the day is at hand. It's near. And not only is it near, it's nearer than it was yesterday. It's nearer than it was when you first believed. So let's unpack a couple of these terms because they tend to confuse Christians. If you ever hear a pastor, a church, a Christian, an author tell you they know the time, and when they say they know the time, they point to a date on the calendar, you can immediately stop learning from them. I mean, the whole uh, segment of Christianity that tries to find something in the newspaper that confirms every verse in the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation. Here's, oh, Russia's doing something. Oh, suddenly it's time. Not suddenly it's time. Paul wrote the Romans 2,000 years ago it was time. Did Paul know who Russia was? (laughs) No, no. When he says, you know the time, he doesn't mean you know how to plug it in the calendar. You know what year 
Jesus is coming. So sell all your stuff, live in a mountain, right? Create your compound. Not that kind of time. What he means is the age that we're in. When you read the Old Testament, the prophets are always talking about in that day, in the latter days. Guess what we're in, the latter days. Has anyone ever asked you, do you think we might be in the end times? You know what your answer should be to that? I don't think we're in the end times. We are in the end times. Now, of course, what they mean is, in the end times, do you think we're at the end of the end times? I don't know. But we're in the last days. We're in the end times because the return of the Lord is incoming. He is inbound. Now, you might say, well, you know, Paul said this 2,000 years ago. I mean, or, you know, roughly. Um, I guess he had it wrong. What does he mean that, you know, the, the time? He didn't have it wrong. He didn't say it's tomorrow. He said it's nearer than it was yesterday. Now, if it was nearer than it was yesterday for them, <laughs> how much nearer is it now? You know, if you, uh, if you just plug into Wikipedia, history of inventions, it's really interesting how far apart things are that we would have, in our view, they all just came at the same time. Glass concrete. We're not like, oh, glass was invented and it wasn't until, you know, I'm making this up, but you know, it wasn't until 600 years later that we got glass blowing. When we think glass, we just think glass in all its forms. We don't see centuries dividing the invention of glass and then glass blowing. It's just a blur. Why is it a blur? Because it's in the grand scheme of things, a couple thousand years it's not, it's not as big as it feels in the moment. And so Paul's not saying, hey, this is happening tomorrow. Oops, Paul's wrong. He shouldn't have written Romans. No, he's saying it's nearer. And it's nearer for our generation than it was for any other generation. It's nearer for our kids than it was to any of their parents' generations. And it's nearer for us as a group. He's writing to a church, and he wants the church to be ready for that time, as that time looms, as that time is impending, are you ready to live, to, to be there? And listen, for far too long, churches like, hey, let's just get our kids to say a prayer, dunk them, and they're ready. And you'll notice in this passage, he's writing to people who are already Christians, and he wants them to get ready. So it's not about converting and getting in, and then you're safe. It's about living that out. So, besides this, you know the time, you know what age we're in. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Therefore, his implication is urgency. It's urgency. He's not saying, y'all have been sinning, like mad, all I hear about in my reports is that all you guys do is sin and you need, to, you need to start not sinning. He's talking about all these things I'm telling you about, loving one another, uh, not owing anybody anything, serving one another, being hospitable, being constant in prayer, 12-12, rejoicing in hope, 12-12, being patient in tribulation, all those things you can do them lackadaisically, half asleep, or you can do them with pep in your step. You could do them like the person's about to be at your door. 
You better not show up inappropriate. It provides a, a kind of energy, a diligence as we start lopping off the things that weigh us down, like the author of Hebrews is telling us, you're running this race, take off the stuff that drags you down and run it. We don't say, oh, I'm in the race, I'm wearing the number, so I'm good. And then we just start walking around. You wear a number, run, run, strive. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Why? Because salvation is near. We don't get lazier as salvation approaches. We get more energetic, more urgent, more earnest, more diligent, more serious about it. Ironically, for many churches and Christians, I think in the recent history of at least American Christianity, the more we think we know the time, like in terms of the calendar, we tend to engage in a, side, a kind of retreatism. This world is a sinking Titanic, so um, we're just, let's just isolate ourselves. Let's go up into a mountain. Let's go up into a cabin. And that's not what Scripture is pointing us to at all. What it's pointing us to is as you realize the world around you is uh, decaying, many would think, I think you'd agree with me, in many ways worsening, that should remind us that the Lord is coming. And when we're reminded that the Lord is coming, it doesn't make us lazier. It makes us more energetic. It makes us lean into things. It makes us take more vigorous notes when we're opening God's word. It makes us pray with a kind of constance, verse 12. It reminds us of our hope in verse 12, so we rejoice in it. It allows us to live underneath a worldly government, knowing that worldly government's about to get taken out. I can be patient. We can bless those who persecute us because we know that persecution isn't going to last forever. The night is far gone. And the day is at hand. I do need to point out that when he says salvation is nearer to us, that might confuse some of us and say, wait a minute, I thought he's writing Christians who are already saved. How can salvation be near if I already have salvation? Well, that's a good question. And I want to remind you of Romans chapter 5. You can turn there because it's the same book. All you got to do is flip back or scroll up, whatever your situation might be. And if you remember chapter 5, he says in verse, let's just back it up to verse 8 because it's just so wonderful. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, this is chapter 5 verse 9, since therefore we have now, now, been justified by his blood. We have been in the past. We, we have received justification. Much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Wait a minute, I thought I was justified and already am saved from the wrath of God. You are, but you also will be saved from the wrath. When that wrath comes for the world, you'll be passed over. There's a now and there's a still yet. There's the salvation we experience now, and there's the salvation we still hope for. He says it again in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, it has happened, it is secure, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Right? 
Were you saved? Well, if you're in Christ, the answer is yes. Like Paul said, from when you first believed. It's near now from when you first believed. There's the beginning of that belief and the inception of that salvation from our experience. And then there's this future realization. We're still struggling with sin. We're still surrounded by sin. We still live in an earth that's under decay and under corruption, that's groaning and hoping for this final deliverance, right? And so it's happened, but it's not fully rolled out yet. It will eventually be fully rolled out. Theologians refer to this side of salvation as glorification, when we will be rescued not just from the penalty of sin, but from its power, from its presence, from the practice of it. There's a lot of P's there for you to remember, right? We were, we were saved from its penalty, but we're still being saved from sin's power over us, and we will be saved from even its presence. We need to lock that in. Because without understanding that whole thing, we don't, we don't really rejoice in hope the way we're supposed to rejoice in hope. And we don't rejoice in hope kind of, you know, lazily with regard to the things that the Lord commands of us. We have preachers out there ridiculously claiming that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. How in the world do you preach Romans 13? He just walked us through the Ten Commandments. So you don't come to Christ and go, the Ten Commandments are, that's the Old Covenant. What's old about the Old Covenant is their inability to do it. Their inability to do it in a way that saves them. What's new about the New Covenant isn't that the law doesn't matter. Holiness doesn't matter. He talked about we need to do what is holy, what is good, what is perfect in 12, 1 and 2. That's why we need to be transformed. I thought I already was transformed. No, you need to be renewed all the time. And so we live into those things that God says are good and bad, the things that he says are holy and not holy. That's not legalism. A legalist is somebody who thinks you can get saved that way. A legalist is somebody who's typically a hypocrite and sees everybody else's inability to follow law perfectly and don't see their own inability to see law perfectly. We don't want to be legalists or hypocrites. We also don't want to be cheap grace Christians that don't believe that because the return of the Lord is impending, that we should live differently because of it. Imagine somebody you highly respected, you found out they're coming into town and that person would like to come to your house tomorrow. You suddenly start cleaning stuff. You're like, what? You know, how does this person view this? And, you, know, you start getting stuff ready. We're like, yeah, the Lord's going to return. And then we don't clean up our lives, Right? Paul's saying, no, it's the opposite. Because salvation is near, I don't have to give you a time. I don't have to give you a date. I don't have to tell you what year it is. All you have to know is that it's coming. Didn't the disciples ask Jesus, can you tell us the time? He's like, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. What is for us to know? The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and with power to live the way I want you to live until I come. That's what you need to know. You don't need a date. You need to know the date is coming. What you need to understand is that your days are not counting down or not counting up. I'm 30 years old. I'm 31 years old. I'm 32 years old. Your days are counting down. All of history is counting down to this return of the Lord. And as the days become fewer, as the generations become fewer, as the months, the years, whatever, become fewer, the pressure becomes something that prompts us to live a certain way. 
So the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. He doesn't mean get converted. He means live like you're awake. Live like you're not still stuck dead in sin. Live like you're moving and transforming. Live like somebody whose mind is being renewed. Ask your spouse. Ask somebody who knows you. Have I changed recently? Like, have I developed? What are the ways in which we're different than we were before as salvation is nearer than it was before? We should be growing. We should be running. We should be walking like we're awake, not half asleep. Because the night is far gone. It's not over. This evil age, this darkness, this night is not over. But it's, it's behind us. The day is at hand, but it's not here yet. But what does that look like? I think it looks like dawn. I think it looks like if you were doing things that you needed the cover of night to do, and as dawn is approaching, you're like, oh, dawn is coming. We don't have the cover of night anymore. You kind of still do, but in a couple minutes you won't. Twilight, right? The sun is breaking in, but it's not over the horizon yet. It's not daytime yet, but you can't call this nighttime. That's where we're in. We're in this overlap of time where the night is gone, it's behind us, this rule of Satan, this rule of wickedness, this decaying corruption of the earth, morally and naturally. And then this inbreaking of the kingdom, this overlap time, because Jesus came in with his kingdom, growing the church in this dark world, but then he's going to come back and fully actualize it. Right? We're in this in-between time, and it doesn't last very long on the grand scheme of things. So what is our response supposed to be to that? What are we supposed to do with this urgency? He gets into it. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, what are we supposed to do? So what? So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Catch the contrast here. I know one of the growth group questions is what's contrasted? Everybody should nail it. Everybody should nail it Tuesday, Saturday, right? Look at the contrast. Here's what I want you to do because of the urgency, because of the impending return of Christ. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Cast off, put on. Dark, light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Cast off, put on, cast off what is dark, put on what is light, walk properly, not this way and this way, not this way and this way, not this way and this way, but put on and make no provision. He keeps going back and forth between what you do, what you don't do. They're two sides of the same coin. These aren't two steps. The first thing you need to do is leave sin and wickedness behind you. The second thing you need to do after you do is to start doing the good things. They happen at the same time. Because to say no to sin is to do the right thing. And to do the right thing is to not do the wrong thing. It's two sides of the same coin. These aren't phases of the Christian's life. The first phase is you're eradicating sin, and then eventually you start doing the righteous things. They are the same thing. That's why the contrast keeps going back and forth between the two. Now let me point out a few things that are going to help us here, I think. When he says, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, I want you to notice, again, you're going to say, well, you just hit this. But he's hitting it again, and I want to make sure we, we grasp this. 
He's saying this to Christians, and Christians might say, but I already put on the armor of light. I know, put it on again. Put it on tomorrow morning, and then put it on Tuesday, and then put it on Wednesday. It doesn't mean you keep getting saved again. That, that baptistry tank would just be up here constantly full of water. Every, every day we'd have to have a service. Multiple services a day, just dunking everybody. We're just getting saved all the time. Well, that's, not, that's not what Paul's. he's not saying get converted each day. What he's saying is this thing that you claim to have, this transformation that you claim to have in Jesus Christ, you live it out daily with an intentionality, right? It's, it's purposeful. It's something that Christ has done on our behalf, but because Christ has done that on our behalf, he does it through us, and it looks like us getting up and making actual decisions. No, I'm going to say no to that. I know it's really hard and it's tempting to not do this, but I'm going to do it anyway because God says to. It's those decisions in your daily life. So we don't just chalk it up to God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty works out through the things that we do. And we intentionally, continually, daily, cast off the works of darkness more and more. And we put on the armor of light. He doesn't say cast off the works of darkness and put on the clothing of light. What is it about armor? Well, what does armor make you think of? Fight, battle, war, warfare. So th- this, is, this is a fight. This is a fight. And we are tempted to be lulled into falling asleep on our watch. And Paul is saying, don't, don't get lulled. Don't be sleepy. Be awake. And being awake looks like an intentionally putting off of works of darkness, an intentionally putting on of armor of light. Of course, we find out that armor of light is Jesus Christ himself in verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the other thing we can notice about this thing that we're putting on, this armor of light, is the difference between light and darkness. Darkness covers Darkness hides. There are things that you might be tempted to explore on the internet when you're in your private private laptop, private room, door shut, than you would if you were in a public library, just clicking away and there's people behind you. Those are all pretty innocent clicks. Darkness gives a kind of permission. Nobody's watching. Right? It's deceit. The things that we do that are shameful, we tend to do them under the cover of things. And Paul's saying, don't live like that. Don't live in little secretive, dark little corners where the real you is hidden, tucked away in some darkness somewhere. We don't live like we're in the dark. We live like we're in the light. I was thinking about this morning, and I don't want to turn this into, I want to be careful how I say this. I don't think it's a badge of honor for us or, or wrong, but I love the light that comes into this sanctuary. Because I see you. You can sit all the way in the back and make, in your mind, you're like, I'm sitting in the back. Don't matter. This ain't that big of a room. I see you. I see you. Right? But I've, I've, I think we were talking about this at Growth Group last week, maybe, but recently talking about it, where I've heard people say, I love CFC, but I'm not going to come back because it's, it's too small. I want to go to something bigger. And I said, well, be careful that bigness isn't anonymity for you. You can kind of disappear in the crowd, and whether you come on a Sunday or don't come on a Sunday, nobody could tell. That's anonymity. You know what that is? Darkness. A darkness that covers 
your lack of attendance, lack of involvement. Because it's dark. All the lights are up front on the concert band. And you can only see maybe a couple people down <laughs> in the blue hue of the stage lights. I'm not saying that's sinful. I just think it's fitting. Everything isn't sin righteousness, but it's fitting. I think it's fitting and appropriate for us to walk into a sanctuary where we can see each other, be with each other, not hiding things from each other. This is why we meet and confess. Some of us hide because we come to church on Sunday. We say hellos, but we don't let anybody ever get deep. And we ignore growth groups. We ignore one-on-ones. We ignore some other aspects of church life. We're okay with the service because no one's going to go deep. Kind of awkward and you know, while we're grabbing our coats. So, did you click on anything this week? <laughs> but if we're sitting down and we're having an honest chat, we can, go, we can go there. And if I don't want to go there, that's allowing darkness to hide some stuff, isn't it? I mean, he's saying we live in light. It's, it's different. We don't, we, don't, we don't live lives shrouded under cover. We don't just have light, we give light. That's another sermon for, from another text. We cast off works of darkness. I think that's why it's, it's dark. That's why this age is characterized by darkness. But his children are characterized by light. And it's armor and it protects us. Don't you realize, Christian, that the more you invite other people into your life and the less darkness shrouding that we do in our lives, the more we resilient we are to not sin. We put on this armor of light And it's God's light and truth that we get from Scripture as we pour over it together in our congregations and even on our own that build in us a a resilience, a protection, an inbuilt protection to those works of darkness. This is why people in the world who don't have Christ, they try to cast off certain works of darkness. They join a 12 Steps program, which ironically they keep very private. We're trying to cast off works without putting on the armor, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Even if you have many years of sobriety, I wonder if somebody who's kicked a certain habit, replaced it with other habits, or have they really dealt with the thing that drove them to those habits in the first place? I'm not saying once a drinker, always a drinker, unless you become a Christian. I'm just saying unless you become a Christian, you're just swapping stuff out. You haven't dealt with darkness yet. It's an exchange. We cast off darkness as we put on light. It doesn't happen one time. You write it in the front of your Bible. I was 12 years old. There was a campfire. The guy was playing a guitar. It continues, and it presses through your whole life with urgency more and more as the day approaches. Verse 13 starts three pairs of sins. They don't cover everything. He's just giving examples. Interestingly, the first few are the kinds of things that get covered in darkness. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. I love how that last pair, quarreling and jealousy, kind of steps out of the orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality. We're just thinking of like nightclubs and frat houses. That's kind of not me. But then when he says quarreling, you're like, well, yeah, I I can be kind of argumentative. Well, you too, not just the drunk. And then when he pulls out jealousy, ooh, that's not shrouded in physical darkness like the first six sins are. 
That's shrouded in our hearts because it cuts down deep. I can act like I'm not jealous, but deep down I am really jealous. And he's saying, no, the light has to pierce to the innermost part of you. I think even picking up on the Ten Commandments that end with covetousness, which he didn't mention explicitly, but makes its way in here. It's related. Not in this and that, not in this and that, not in this and that, but walk properly. I love that that fittingness that he points out in verse 13. There's a proper way to walk and an improper way to walk. And kind of going with his whole analogy of putting something on, dressing appropriately. Okay? Uh, I think increasingly our generations are losing the, the sense of uh, what it means to dress for the occasion. This, this most dawned on me when I, I graduated Moody, left, you know, started pastoring and everything, and then eventually in 2013 I went back and taught my first class at Moody. And some of the students showed up in straight-up PJs to class. I was like, say what? I don't know how many of you know about Moody Bible Institute, okay? You couldn't play cards. You couldn't play, shoot pool. You can't go to the theater. And you go to class dressed up, collar, button-down shirt, tucked in, shoes. Khakis are the most casual you're allowed. None of these dungarees, right? I mean, dungarees became, I have my formal pair of dungarees, my formal jeans. I've got skinny jeans. Hopefully you don't have skinny jeans. Where, where did jeans begin? Cleaning up poop? So we, we just like, things start a certain way and then they evolve and it just dawned on me, I'm up there, I'm like, wow, if you can wear PJs to a formal college class, are these kids going to grow up and go to interviews in PJs? I don't know, like what's going on? Maybe. Don't do that young people. Dress communicates. How you dress communicates. And maybe I go a little too far, you know, but there's something serious about what we do here at church that some churches maybe take too far, everybody wearing suits and buckled up with the ties and all that. I'm, I'm not saying that's right or wrong or better or worse, but how you dress communicates. If you dress slovenly, and then you, don't, you get passed over for that promotion, I mean, it, it does connect. You communicate something by dressing slovenly. Food all there, you don't carry, carry a Tide stick. You, know, hope, you, know, you don't care, you're just food. Al's beef is all over your shirt, and you're like, hey, can I get that promotion? Right? So what Paul is saying is there's a way to dress. And the first thing he said is you need to dress for battle. Some of you are still in your PJs. You don't go to battle in PJs, you go to battle in armor. And so when he says you walk appropriately, he means you, you, you pay attention to the way that you walk. You pay attention to what your life looks like. And the things that are of darkness, you cast them off. And the things that are of light, you put those on every day with an intentionality and a vigor and an earnestness that comes as you realize when God shows up, he doesn't care what teams I picked for March Madness. He, do, he doesn't care how much time. I put into binging that show. We need to pay attention to the things that we're supposed to pay attention to, not just in the outright sinful things, but in the things that this dark world provides for entertainment that kind of just lull us to sleep, distract us, and distract us from putting on the armor of light. He doesn't just say, don't do the bad things. We need to lean into the good things. 
Verse 14, though, doesn't give us a list of good things to do. He wants to remind you it's putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've not put on the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning, this doesn't apply to you. You're just stuck in darkness. But if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, his blood covers you, his atonement covers you. It means transformation for you. And then look at the end of verse 14. It means this kind of intentionality I've been talking about. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for it to gratify its desires. This dovetails with Aaron's sermon from James. We tend to think sin just happens. The worst kind of repentance is to sit there with your pastor, your parents, or whatever, and like, we were there, we were kind of on the couch. It just happened. No, it didn't just happen. Provision was made for it ahead of time. Accountability wasn't there. Principles weren't there. Discipline wasn't there. Access to temptation was there. Maybe a certain boundaries pushed, no consequences. Let's push to the next boundary. There are all kinds of precursors that led up to what happened that night. And so Paul's saying, don't, don't live this life where you're like kind of waltzing around and just, oh, an arrow hit me. Sorry, I'm bleeding. Where was your armor, man? You made a provision for that arrow to pierce you because you could have gotten dressed up in armor and you're walking around in pajamas. So ahead of time, in fact, I don't want to push this too far, but the word provision there means foresight. Like in the book of Acts, the word is used as someone knowing that visitors are coming and they prepare provisions knowing that the person is coming, right? It's a kind of thinking ahead. And I don't want to push that too far. It's not, it's not predicting the future. It doesn't mean that. But it's a kind of provision that's there ahead of time. And the discipline it takes to cast off darkness in the heat of a moment, that needs to be prepared ahead of time. Otherwise, we made provision for that to be stronger than it should have been. None of us can walk out of here and go, I'm not going to get tempted this week. You are going to be tempted this week. Today, you're going to be tempted. Something. What Paul's saying is don't make provision for it because those desires don't really leave. It's like when he... In my mind, he kind of knelt next to Cain, and he's like, Cain, let me, let me tell you about sin. Sin is like a bully that knows what time you get out of school and is waiting in the alley, and it wants to pounce on you. And God doesn't tell Cain, but don't worry about it. I'm going to stop that from happening. He's like, you have to master it. And he didn't and became a murderer. And that lesson is something we carry for us. How come, how come, how can we not be like Cain? The only way we can be not like Cain is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ so that by his grace, we realize there's desires, but we don't gratify them. Even though I want to gratify it, I don't gratify it. And the only way I can get to the point in my life where I don't gratify it is if I don't make provisions for gratifying it. So, when you're on your computer... You're on your computer in the light, and you click on stuff like your friends are hanging out with you, like you're in a public lab. That's the stuff you click on. The stuff you have to look over your shoulder and then click, don't. And some of you need help beforehand. Give somebody your passcode, lock down the thing so certain sites get blocked, and that might make you feel like a child. You are, spiritually. So am I. 
That's why we need to grow. That's why we need to mature. That's why we need accountability. That's why we need to make no provisions ahead of time to know that if I'm put in this situation, I need help ahead of time. And I can't just bank on me being strong enough in the heat of the moment. So we need to be careful what we're doing when we're alone. Some of us need to be careful with being alone. And make sure we understand that the Lord is watching, the Lord's expecting, the Lord is building in us a, a hope and an urgency to live rightly. And we don't have the energy ourselves to do it. That's why it doesn't say put on your new you. Right? Put on your real you. Oh, the real you is what got you in trouble. Put on somebody else, Jesus Christ, who's the, that's the only way that we can live in his grace. Let's pray. Fathers, we close in this time of worship. We pray that you would give us grace, give us energy. Some of us feel battered, tired. Some of us are wounded. Some of us are still um, carrying battle scars from this entire fight. Uh, we pray for healing. We pray for confession and forgiveness. We pray that we would lean into your real forgiveness, which is transformative as it changes us. And we pray that we would more and more build that armor, putting it on constantly, incessantly, so that we can uh, rejoice in hope, uh, pray constantly, be patient in tribulation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.